in a small town way out in the country, a local farmer invited the new preacher and his wife to come out to the farm for some supper. And while the women were finishing off preparations in the kitchen, the men were in the other room and they were talking. And the man who invited the pastor said, the farmer said, well, I, I understand that you like chicken. And so knowing that, I asked my wife to prepare her special chicken recipe. And as he said that, his young boy was playing nearby and overheard the conversation. He said, chicken? He said, Daddy, I thought we were having buzzard. He said, buzzard? Now, son, what would give you an idea that we would have buzzard? He said, well, remember yesterday I heard you talking to Mama, and you told her that we should have that old buzzer over for dinner and get this thing over with. <laughs> said, now, unfortunately, many of us can relate to such a story. How many times have or how often have your words come back to haunt or embarrass you? If you have small children, they're like tape recorders. And if you've ever heard them say things that really bother you, the reason they bother you as much as they do is because they reflect something that you've already said in the past. That's why I love that show, Kids Say the Darndest Things. Do you ever watch that? And the kids are saying some things, and then they hurry up and they flash to the parents sitting in their seats, just dying. Just like, you know, where's this going? I hope it doesn't go where I think it's going because we're in trouble on national TV. And so, you know, many of us have been there. We understand that. We know that. And uh, that's the focus today on our, in our ongoing study of the book of James. You see, from his discourse on idle or dead faith, James proceeds to discuss idle or destructive speech. And I've become convinced of this, that the more idle time that we have and the more idle are our good works before God the more opportunities that we have to sit around and talk idly and have speech that is not pleasing to the Lord. If you stop and think about it, I don't know about your life, but I find that it's true, and that is this, that there are those in our lives or around our lives, and maybe even among us, who have way too much free time on their hands. And they have nothing better to do than to wonder what other people are doing to criticize what they are doing, to question what they are doing, to, uh, to ridicule them in some way, to make statements like, well, I don't know why they're doing that, they should be doing this or the other thing. And my answer always is this, you know what, if you were busy doing things instead of correcting people that were doing things, you wouldn't need to know whether they needed corrected or not. Why don't you just get busy doing what God wants you to do instead of wondering and worrying about what everybody around you is doing or supposed to be doing? And it's amazing to me that when people stop me, they go, hey, have you heard this? And it's like, you know what, I haven't had time to hear it because we're really busy doing what God wants us to do. I don't know how people have time to sit around and idly chat and discuss things that they shouldn't be discussing anyway. Because that is exactly what James is trying to get across. If your works are dead and your faith is dead, then you know what, you've got time to sit around idly and their speech will reflect that as well. And so the failure to bridle or control the tongue that's mentioned in James 1.26 is now expanded. And as disturbing as those who have faith with no works are those Christians who substitute words for works. One's tongue should be controlled. And that's what we're going to learn as we look at James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In this particular passage, if you've got your Bibles, I would like to look at together. Um, But basically what we're going to learn is that we are to be growing. Remember the whole focus of the book of James is that we should be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, That we should be conformed into the image of Christ. That God's goal for all of his children is that we grow up. That we grow into spiritual maturity. And now we come to a topic that I guarantee you affects every one of us. And that is we are to be growing through tongue control. Growing through tongue control. James chapter 3, let's look at verses 1 through 12. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect, a perfect man, mature, complete, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ship also, though they are so great and are driven by small, strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires is where the ship ends up going. 
So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how such a great, how a great a forest is set aflame by such a small flame. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. In this particular passage, the Christians that James wrote to were apparently having a serious problem with their tongues. And James had already warned them to be what? Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. He also told them that the believer who doesn't bridle his tongue in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, is not truly religious. He goes on to say that we must speak and act as though we were already facing Christ in judgment. And we saw that in chapter 2, verse 12. And, you know, as we go through this, I think it's one of the, the greatest arguments for the, um, for the studying of the Bible in the context in which it was written. I think it's one of the reasons that book studies are so important. And a verse-by-verse expository, as it's called, study of the Bible is critical because the foundation is laid for further truth as we go throughout the work that God has put before us. So as you go through a letter, you know, topical studies are great, and I understand that there's a benefit for it. But I also believe that the the study of the Word of God verse-by-verse from the passage in which we see it is critical to the understanding completely of the full counsel of God. Because as we go through, we've already seen that God... God is already he's reiterating certain points that he's already made so that we do not forget them. He builds upon them, and later we'll see that they're going to have all kinds of problems in, in uh, the fourth chapter that is going to be addressed by what we're already learning. So we're constantly building on that which we learn. And it's critical that we understand that. The power of speech is one of the greatest powers God has given us. Consider this. With the tongue, man can praise God. He can pray He can preach the word, and he can lead the lost to Christ. But on the other hand, with the same tongue, he can tell lies that could ruin a man's reputation, or he can break a person's heart with the words that come out of his mouth. Stop and think about it. You know, how many times have you dropped the word bombs on people around you? I'm thinking about the husband who beats down his wife emotionally, or maybe breaks her spirit through criticism or through destructive language. Or wives who shred their husbands by attacking them rather than meeting their need for honor and respect and a sense of significance in their relationship. I'm thinking of parents who maim their children with verbal explosives such as, can't you do anything right? You know, you're never going to amount to anything in your life. Or the infamous, why can't you be more like your brother? Or more like your sister. Oh, and you know, and children are not always guilt-free from such offense either. Because they often do their damage by insulting their parents and not giving them the just respect that they are due before God and the honor that comes with their position as parents. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And so as we consider all of this, we need to realize the ability to speak words is the ability to influence others and accomplish a tremendous task, and yet it also we take this ability for granted many times. So as we look at this passage, in order to impress upon us the importance of our speech, what James does is he talks about controlling our speech and the consequences when we don't. And he makes it very simple to understand as he uses certain illustrations that we will see to use as an outline for what he wants to get across to us. And if you've got a pen handy or something of that nature, I want you to just go through and take a look with me as he illustrates, for example, in verse 3, he uses a bit or the bit that controls a horse. You might want to underline that. He uses a bit and a rudder as a first, the first two word pictures to illustrate one truth. As we go through it, in, in verse 5, he uses the picture, uh, the illustration of a fire, and also of wild beasts in verse 7, to illustrate yet another point. And in verse 11, he uses that of a fountain, 
and that of a tree to illustrate his final point. And so it's a very simple three-point outline, and as we go through it, he uses those word pictures to help us to understand the importance of controlling our speech. And the first thing that we learn is this in verses 1 through 4, that the tongue has power. And the power that he wants us to understand is that the tongue has the power to direct. The power to direct. Notice what he says. Not many of you, brothers, should become teachers, knowing that, such a, uh, that, the, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. In these particular verses, James warns Christians, when he says, my brethren or brothers, of something that many of us often forget. And that is our responsibility and accountability to God for what comes out of our mouth. Our responsibility and our accountability to God for every word that proceeds out of our mouth. Apparently, in this particular assembly, many of them, if not all of them, wanted to be teachers. Why? Because in that culture, there were certain privileges that went along with being teachers. There was certain respect that went along with being teachers. And so as they came to know Christ as their Savior, the first thing that they wanted to do was hurry up and become teachers because they saw the honor and the respect that was given to rabbis in that particular culture. So they were convinced that they wanted to be teachers, but one thing that they forgot was the great responsibility and accountability that went along with such a position. And so he wanted to get that out right away because the tongue has the ability or power to direct the lives of those we influence by the words that we speak. So immediately he wants to make sure that everyone understands that, you know what, you have a responsibility and accountability if you're going to direct people's lives in a certain way that you will be judged by God for that direction that you give them. So you better make sure that it's really God's gift that he's given you and God's calling in your life because if not, you don't want to be put in that kind of position. And as we look at this and go through it, there's a stricter judgment. You know, stop and think about it from the standpoint of a responsibility of those who teach. Teachers must use their tongues to teach the truth of the Word of God. Teachers must, and also they must also practice what they teach, otherwise what they teach is hypocrisy. You know, what's interesting is when we have to, as, as a teacher, considering the, the full counsel of God's Word, and the temptation sometimes to make it say something that it doesn't say. To make it say what we want it to say because that's the point that we want to get across versus just allowing God's word to speak as it is and allow God to make the point that he wants to make. And there's a struggle that goes along with being in a position of teaching because we, we are struggling or we're tempted to maybe use it to accomplish our agenda instead of God's agenda. There's also the, the temptation to distort the truth because you know that it may insult the audience in which God has put before you to speak. And so you start watering things down or telling people what they want to hear instead of why God has brought them together to hear what he wants them to hear. And we struggle with that. There's also that of manipulating the truth to get across whatever it is from a personal agenda that a teacher may have. We see it happen oftentimes in many of the cults where they use, quote, the word of God, but they change the words and they change the meaning, they change the interpretation of it to meet their own needs to accomplish their own agenda and the program that they're trying to build around themselves rather than just be messengers of God. In Ezra 7.10, we're told that Ezra dedicated himself to study the law, to study the word of God, to then live it, and then to teach it. And anyone who teaches or preaches the Word of God understands that's exactly the order in which it has to take place. We study the Word of God, we apply it in our own lives first, and then we're able to teach from an authoritative standpoint exactly what it is that God wants us to teach. You know, and as we consider all these things, it's interesting that, you know, the struggle that's there is a, is a, a great struggle in wanting to be pleasing to men and pleasing to God. So what he's trying to get across is we have the ability to direct the lives of people, so don't jump into that position too quickly without understanding the accountability and the responsibility. Personally, there isn't a day that I don't pick up the Bible to teach the Word of God that I'm not reminded of this passage. And there's a very healthy fear that comes along with fearing God and not fearing man, and that is that, Lord, am I being true to what you're asking me to do, or am I more concerned about what the audience thinks of me than I am of being faithful as a messenger of you? You see, what we got to understand is this, and everyone that's here, I beg you to listen to this carefully. 
If indeed I am teaching the word of God, then it is God that you must deal with as the truth comes out and he convicts you of your guilt in your own life. This isn't my opinion. This isn't about me and you. This is about the word of God and God's conviction in your life and you dealing with God directly yourself. I am only a messenger, and I will never forget that. I didn't write this. I'm not the author. I'm not sharp enough sometimes to even explain it, yet alone to come up with it. So understand very carefully that all we are are messengers who are called by God to teach others the truth of the Word of God. As I look out and I see 700 people, the thing that I'm constantly reminded is this. 700 people times one hour of your life is 700 hours of accountability that I have before God. Some of you may come or bring somebody with you for the first time that you've been praying for for years and they finally agreed to come to church. Could you imagine the accountability if it was a week when I decided that, you know what, I think I'll just wing it, I had a tough week. And to be accountable and responsible for God for that. To have a person walk out of here and go, you know what, that was, a, that was the biggest waste of an hour plus the time to get up and the time to get home. That was the biggest waste of two hours of my life and it's exactly what I thought. You know what, this God thing's not real, it's not relevant, the Bible's not relevant. You know what, I, what a waste of time, thanks for asking me, but I'm never coming back again. You know, there's a day that goes by that I don't think of that. And hopefully it's what God uses in my life to make sure that I am diligent about the study of the Word of God and then also to be able to illustrate it in practical ways on the lower shelf so that there isn't any excuse for any of you to ever walk out of here and say, you know what, I didn't get anything out of that. I'm not here to dazzle anybody with Greek or Hebrew or anything that you could care less about. What I want to do is I want to put it right here so that everybody has access to it and the only reason you don't get it is because you don't want it. And I have no control over that. But everything else, that's what it's all about. So James warns right off the bat, he goes, hey, you know what? Don't rush to be a teacher because there's a stricter judgment. But on the other hand, if you're called and gifted to teach, don't run from the responsibility because you're compelled to do what God has called you to do. And every one of us are given gifts that have come to know the Lord, and God says, don't run from that gift, but you better exercise it, you better develop it, you better, uh, you better do what God has called you and gifted you to do, because that's part of our service to the Lord while we're here on earth, and it's also part of the growing up process. You know, it's interesting, the Bible clearly sets forth the strictness of God's judgment on those who claim to speak for him. In fact, Jude indicates that false teachers who lead others astray will incur more severe punishment in hell than others. That false teachers are indicted for more severe punishment because they use their mouths to deceive people and lead them away from the truth instead of to the truth. Even legitimate teachers are held accountable. Probably the most compelling argument And the word of God is found in the life of Moses. It's in uh, Numbers chapter 20. But the life of Moses was interesting. God told Moses and Aaron, he said, gather the people together. And he told Moses, he said, take the rod, you and your brother, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield water. The people were grumbling and complaining because they were thirsty. And so God said, hey, Moses, get the people together, take the rod, and I want you to go over to the rock and hit the rock and water will come forth and I will show that I can provide to the people. So here's what Moses did. He said, now, he said to them as he gathered the people together, Now listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand. He struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. So they all got the water, but Moses got the judgment of God. And the reason that he got the judgment of God is because he hit the rock instead of speaking to it the way that God said to speak to it. And judgment was added because he added words to the word of God. So what he did was he said, take the rod, go over and speak to the rock. Water's going to come out and it's going to take care of the needs of the people. Well, Moses was so ticked because people were people and they got him upset because they weren't listening to God. They were rebelling against God. They were getting on his nerves. He was having a bad day. And he said, you people are a bunch of rebels. And in essence, what he's saying, you know, I'm just getting sick of you. You want some water? Here's some stinking water. That's the New Living Translation. (laughs) And he smacked the rock. And he said, you know what, you want us to give you water? We'll give you water. Now, we'll give you water? What do you mean, we'll give you water? When God make you a partner? When Moses, when God cut you in? What is this, 50-50, we'll give you water? Moses never gave the people water. God gave the people water. But he said that we'll give you water. 
Why was Moses judged before God? The same reason in Revelation chapter 22 that God warns that anyone who adds to or takes away the book of this law or the prophecies, the curses that were in this book will be added to his life. Because God's word is complete in and of itself. God doesn't need any help. It's not an unfinished work. It's finished. It's complete. It's thorough. God doesn't need me or anybody else, any other teacher or preacher, adding anything to it that God hasn't already put in it. So what Moses did was he put himself on the same level as God and said, we will give you water. God said, no, we won't. I'll give them water and you just do what I told you to do. And the fact you added to my words, I am going to now judge you strictly. And because of that, Moses never entered the promised land with the people. As a great illustration of the fact, you know what? God forgives sin, but he doesn't always wipe out the consequence of our actions. And we need to recognize that. We need to understand that. Moses got in trouble for adding to or taking away from the word of God. So as we go through this, we need to recognize that, you know, some of you are thinking, and I know how some of you think. You're thinking, thank God, praise God, I'm not a teacher. Woo! Too bad for you, Chuck. God bless you. And I hope it all works out well. Thank you for your concern. But you know what? Go back to James uh, chapter 3 and look what he says. For we all stumble in many ways. I like that because now we're all in this together. We all stumble in many ways. Nothing seems to trip a believer more than a dangling tongue. Some of you can't even walk two steps without tripping over your mucous membrane. Thing that's hanging down there and you're tripping over it again. We all stumble in many ways. And one of those many ways is that we open our mouth and say things that we should not say. Remember all the old posters that were out during World War II looking at them? And I only know these things through reading history books. Some of you actually have the posters at home in your garage. But there was a poster that said, Loose lips sink ships. Don't try to say that too fast. That's part of that accountability before God, that stricter judgment. Say this slow. Loose lips sink ships. Loose lips also destroy lives. Loose lips destroy lives. And this is how he illustrates the power to direct. Notice that he says, if anyone is, is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's mature. If you've learned to control your tongue, good for you, because spiritual maturity is not a possibility until you learn to control your tongue. He says, when we put bits in the mouths of a horse or horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Can you imagine that? Have you ever seen a horse? I mean, have you ever seen a person, and this is a sports illustration, and it's equestrian. Who would have ever thought that I could go there? But I don't even know if it's going to be really accurate or not, but, you know, just run with me on this. But if you've ever seen a child on a horse, you look at a horse and you go, now how can this little girl or this little guy control this 2,000, 3,000, whatever, how much a horse weighs, control this big animal and make it do what it wants to do? I mean, stop and think about it. How can a little child or, you know, someone who is not physically compelling as a specimen of the human race. Make a horse do what it wants it to do. They stick a bit in its mouth, and that little bit that goes in the mouth, they can make that horse do a number of things. They can make it turn. They can make it stop. They can make it jump. They can make it do anything that he or she riding that horse wants it to do. And I think that's fascinating because the illustration he's just trying to get across, the power to direct is this that our tongue has the ability to direct the rest of our bodies. And this little thing here, and look, I don't have anything sticking, I have no piercings there, in case you're wondering. I mean, I don't know what would motivate somebody to lay their tongue out and have somebody nail something through it, but, but, but I'm thinking, you know, it may not be a bad solution to some of our problems. But... Um, <clears throat> But, but I mean, you stop, that, that, that little thing has the ability to control our whole body. The power to direct our body. That's just amazing to me when you think about it. Notice it says, and also the ship 
and the rudder is another example. A ship that is so large and driven by strong winds is able to be steered in any direction the pilot wants it to go by just a small rudder in the back of the boat. And that is amazing if you stop and think about it. The ability or the power to direct such, such, a, such a, a, a vessel of such magnificence. I mean, it, it's incredible when you look at that and you see a ship out at sea and you see the wind trying to blow it one way and you see the pilot can take it another way. And I think about it from a very practical standpoint, and that's this, that we've got many things in our life that are trying to direct us in one way that is not pleasing to God. And we've got this little rudder, so to speak, or this bit in our mouth that is able to direct us in a way that's pleasing to God or able to direct us in a way that's not pleasing to God. And it has such power to be able to, to dictate what we do with our life. The tongue has the ability to affect the lives of others. If you've ever seen an old movie and you've seen a horse, a runaway horse with a carriage on the back, and the horse gets out of control and it runs down the street, and you see it flip over and the people in it are thrown all over the place or the wagon's thrown or whatever, or you see a horse running through a crowd knocking people down, you see the destruction and the devastation that, that it can cause. Or if you see a ship that's wrecked into the coral and somehow or another the wind blows it to the reef instead of the rudder being able to take it in another direction and you see the shipwreck and the damage and the loss of lives or the destruction that takes place because it hasn't been controlled properly. And I look at that and realize that's exactly the illustration that God's trying to get across with our tongue. We can destroy people with our, lo with our tongues and with our words or we can use it to the glory of God and build them up and encourage them and we'll take a look at that. The power of the word. That a judge could say guilty or not guilty. And the destiny of a prisoner is either to go free or to spend the next 30 years behind bars. The power of the words of a leader who says we're going to send troops into a certain area and the action that then follows. Or the power in a negative way of a leader who lies before the people and influences those around him to be able to say to, him, to themselves, hey, he can get away with it, I can get away with it. It doesn't really matter what we say, it doesn't really matter what we do because we're not held accountable. And the power to lead people astray from the truth of the accountability of the word of God. We are personally responsible before God for our actions. We're personally accountable before God for the words that come out of our mouth. We need to recognize that and understand that. You know, what's interesting, don't ever underestimate the guidance that you can give by the words that you speak. One of the great illustrations on April 21st, 1855, Edward Kimball went into a Boston shoe store and he led the shoe clerk to Christ. The shoe clerk was Dwight Moody. And from Dwight Moody came the greatest evangelist that ever lived this century who walked and preached and talked the word of God. And thousands upon thousands of people gave their life to Christ. You can never underestimate the influence of the power to influence people and direct them with our words. That that one man was faithful enough to share the love of God that was found in Christ Jesus with a shoe clerk who turned into one of the greatest evangelists that the, the Christian world has ever known. We have the ability to influence people in a positive way. And we need to recognize that and understand that. And it also great, bears great responsibility. And I want to share with you something very practical as we look at this. The power to direct with our words. But, but I was brought, this was brought to my attention. I think that we need to recognize this and understand it and we need to take action with our words and that is this. There are several assembly bills that are sitting on the, on the desk of the governor of the state of California. And these bills all have to do with homosexual legislation that's pro-homosexual. Um, we need to take this phone number down and we need to, with the power of our words, be able to direct people in a way that is pleasing to God and also in a manner in which it's going to direct our culture and our society in a way that will not lead us further and further from the truth of the word of God. But on Governor Davis's desk are one, two, three, four, five, six assembly bills that if passed will do the following. Parental involvement will be usurped. That uh, parents will not cannot be notified that these services. When I'm talking about contraceptive contraceptive services to abortions, free of parental involvement in the lives of our children. That this Assembly Bill 1363 would allow schools to be able to teach and to give counsel to our kids without us as parents having any input whatsoever. We need to recognize that and understand that. There are also AB 26 legalizes homosexual domestic partnerships and recognizes homosexual couples by marriage benefits. AB 101, I mean 1001 and AB 167 elevate homosexuality to the status of a civil right. You know, and we talked about that in our study in the book of James, that you know what? God holds us accountable for the choices that we make, not for the color of our skin. 
God has chosen the color of our skin. We choose the behavior that we enter into. And when we start to confuse personal choices and behavior for that, that which is God-ordained, we're in big trouble in our culture. And we need to recognize that and understand that because it's going to open the floodgate that we will not be able to stop. And in fact, as we look at some of these bills, similar measures will, will not allow, even when you're looking at a church-run boarding house, a church-run school cannot discriminate from anyone who pr- openly professes or engages in homosexual lifestyle or they will be heavily fined. And as we look at all this, there will be a day that's coming if these bills pass that teachers and preachers will not be able to stand and open the Word of God and teach the full counsel of God when it comes to personal choices and decisions, when it comes to sexual sin, without the fear of losing their nonprofit status or even imprisonment or fines. And we sit around and we we sometimes wonder whether or not, oh, it's not that bad. Yes, it is. And it's subtle and it's deceptive and it sneaks through because they don't want to hear it. The phone numbers are on here. They don't even want to listen to it. And in fact, the phone number that's here, they won't even talk to you about it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway if you want to call and make your opinion known based on what the Word of God teaches. Area code 916-445-0131 is Governor Davis's office. In fact, they won't even allow you probably to get through on that number. There's a fax number. You can send your letters or faxes, 916-445-4633. His press secretary would love to hear from you. Michael Busmonte, his number is 916-445-4571. And those who have contacted him, they've already been told by him that he doesn't want to hear any of this. But I think it would be really good for him to hear it. Um, And also, because they're not taking phone calls, there is a rally in San Diego at the San Diego office of the governor at noon tomorrow, which is Monday. And uh, for those who may be in the area or have nothing else to do or make this a point to do it, it's at 1350 Front Street in San Diego. The reason that I bring that up is because, you know, the Word of God is practical and it is relevant and we do have the power to direct lives. And we can use our tongues to direct others in a way that's pleasing to God and towards God or we can use our tongue to direct others in a way that is not pleasing to God and away from God. And so as we look at this, we need to realize that we have a tremendous gift and that gift is the ability to speak on behalf of God. And we need to be a salt, and we need to be salt, and we need to be light. And we need to not take that gift for granted. Number two, we also realize that the tongue has the power to what? To destroy. Now, who doesn't already know that? The tongue has the ability to destroy. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. This is certainly a tough subject to deal with. But it's also very important because, as I mentioned, spiritual maturity is an impossibility until we learn to control our tongue. Now the question for you is this. Why is tongue control so difficult? Listen carefully. I need to say this very slowly. Tongue control is difficult because most of us are full of brag. We are full of brag. Now let me explain what that means. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. We're full of brag. How many know people that, you know what, you just about get sick of hearing everything that they're going to do, everything that they have done, and everything they're not going to do? They just sit around, and it's like talking about me, 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 my, 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 look at me, look at I do, look at all this stuff. It's like blah, 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 blah. And the bottom line is this, you know, the more you boast about yourself and the more you brag about yourself, the more words that come out of your mouth, the more you have a tendency maybe to embellish the truth just maybe this much. All right? Bottom line is, is that we need to be careful about boasting about ourselves. I like the story you may have heard about the frog, the frog that wanted to go south for the winter, because you know frogs, they don't like snow. And um, at least all the frogs I know don't. And so they wanted to go south for the winter. And uh, so he goes up to a couple of birds and said, hey, can you fly me to, you know, can you fly me south with you? And they're like, no, I mean, I can't fly with you sitting on my back, and there's no way that I could distribute the weight. And the frog comes up with an idea. He says, hey, I, you know, I got a great idea. Why don't we get a stick? on your back and I'll put the stick on your back and then I'll be in the middle and I'll just hold on to the stick with my mouth and you can fly me where you're going for the winter. And the bird said, well, that's not going to be a big burden for us, so that's great. So they get the stick put on the back of these two birds. These two birds take off. They got a stick in the middle and they got this frog and he's hanging on with his mouth. And he's just flying and he's, t- he's just taking it all in and as he's flying over his particular farm, his farmer looks up and said, man, now that's a pretty good idea. Whose idea was that? 
To which the frog said, Mine! There you go. So, what's the point? Bottom line, you know what? We need to have this attitude that was also in Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he took on the appearance of a bondservant. And he was obedient before God to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, because of that, God highly exalted him above every other name. He has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth that he is Lord to the glory of God. Have the same attitude in yourself. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because he will exalt you at the proper time. From a practical standpoint, it means basically this. There is no room in the life of a Christian for trash talk, self-promotion. So many of us want to sell ourselves because that's what we're taught in the world. You've got to sell yourself because no one else will sell you for you. You've got to make sure people know who you are. You've got to make sure they know what you can do. You need to sell yourself. To you, I challenge you to read through the Word of God and find anywhere where God says God's people ever have to promote themselves. And in fact, we're told exactly the opposite. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will, at the proper time, when it's the right time, He will exalt you. See, the bottom line is we don't have to promote ourselves. You know why? Because God knows where we are. He knows where we are. He knows what we can do. David, a shepherd boy outside, taking care of his father's sheep, didn't have a problem when it came time to promotion because God sent for him and brought him in. Every other brother went parading in front of the, of the prophet and they said, no, that's not him, that's not him. Is this all you got? His dad said, well, I got another one, but he's out in the field. And Well, send for him. God knew where he was. We don't have to promote ourselves. We don't have to brag about ourselves. We don't have to boast about ourselves because we're like the frog. The minute we open our mouth, you know what? It gets all messed up. Don't promote yourself. The power to destroy often begins with a prideful heart that feels like it has to promote itself. Pride comes before the fall and a haughty heart before destruction. Now notice the illustration that he uses as far as destruction is concerned. It says, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Any of us in Southern California, especially around Santa Ana Winds time, knows and understands the danger of a small spark. How many times have we seen on the news this great fire that's ravishing, you know, it just, it's all over the place. It's destroying acres and acres, hundreds of thousands of acres, and it all starts with this. Well, it all started when somebody threw a cigarette butt out the window. What? A cigarette butt? Started all of that? Well, it all started when Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocked over a lantern. In 1871, on October 8th, 100,000 people were left homeless, 17,500 17, buildings were destroyed, and 300 people died, costing the city of Chicago over $400 million in 1871 dollars. What created all the damage? A cow kicking over a lantern. You know they wanted to barbecue that cow, <laughs> but it was too late. The bottom line is this. You go, man, how can such damage be created with a small spark? Oh, how many times have you said what seemingly was an insignificant statement only to have it just go through your house? But I, I just said, I don't know. But I just said, whew, how did it get to there from there? Wow, a small spark. God also uses wild animals. Notice what he says. This is great. He says, All kind of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. Think about it. How many, how many animals have you seen? You go to a circus, you go to a sea world, you go somewhere and you go, Wow, look at that. Big old stinking whale jumping up there, bouncing a ball off its nose. Look how big that whale is and how little the guy is telling it what to do. How dumb can that whale be? You just tell that little guy, Get out of my face. But he doesn't. Or a horse that's used on a farm. Or camels or llamas or all the, all the animals that man has been able to train to do what it wants it to do to work productively for it. You look at that and go, hey, you know what? Man can tame these great big beasts to do what he wants it to do. 
I was watching the Discovery Channel the other day. You ever see that crazy guy that goes around picking up snakes and stuff? Who is that guy? Oh, oh, she's a beaut. Come on in here. Follow me. Oh, look, look. Oh, look at there. There's like 50 rattlesnakes in here. These are buttes. Look at this. Oh, here, I'm going to pull one out for you. What is he thinking? But I bet it's, it's great TV. It's like, you know, that's exactly where you want to see a rattlesnake, you know, on a television set. And, and then when they jump out, I jump up. And I know that I'm saying, this guy, I mean, it's like, but, but I, you know, you see, and then they, people train snakes. I was watching these people in India train cobras. And they, they take them when, and, they, and they feed them. They hand feed cobras to train them, to tame them. And then they see, you know, the little kid, he's going and gets bit on the leg and then the parents are all plotting, yay, he's been initiated. What? But that's what they do. And they're able to train. I mean, they can tame poisonous snakes or elephants or camels or llamas or whales and they can get dolphins to, to, and they get seals to clap. Oh, it's a, I mean, it's amazing. We can do all this stuff. And what's amazing, though, is God says this, Man can tame the wildest beast, but he can't tame his tongue. Anybody see a little irony in any of that? He can tame Shamu, but he can't tame his tongue. Why? Because only God can. Notice that. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no one can tame the tongue, for it's a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. The tongue. Only God can tame the tongue. Which is really fascinating. And, 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 and I'm going to ask you a question. And here's kind of your homework assignment. But that is this. If you were given $10 for every helpful, edifying word you ever said, and you lost $5 for every hurtful, destructive word that ever came out of your mouth, would you be rich or would you be poor today? Here's your homework. This week, is how practical this is. I'd suggest you use quarters and dimes. <laughs> every, every word that is edifying, lifting up, encouraging to another person in your family, put a quarter in a jar. Have one for every person in your family. Okay? And then every time they say something stupid, destructive, harmful, negative, then you know what? Find them a dime. And then let me know next week how it all turns out. Because I'm just curious to find out. I will guarantee you this. That if you know that everything you say you're going to be held accountable for and judged for, it'll change the way you speak to each other. Won't it? Do you ever see a video camera on a person and they know they're being videoed? They think before they speak. Everything they think, everything they're about to say, everything they're about to do, they think, you know what? People are watching this. But it's amazing when they don't know they're being watched what their behavior is like. I saw these two guys, they taped this thing and they were on one of those those slingshot things. Now here's an interesting thing. They're on this thing where they sit in a chair together, two guys. And they had a video camera right here. And it was like a slingshot that threw you like, I don't know, 600,000 feet up into the air. You know, when you go from like zero to 600 miles an hour in like a second. And on top of all of it, you pay to get that to happen to yourself. Which is really an interesting racket. But, and so they had this camera there, and they had these two guys. And, and the one guy was obviously aware of the videotape because he was trying to be really cool about it. He was talking to the people. It's like, oh, John, I can't believe you made me do this. Oh, you wait till I get off of this. And the other guy was going, hey, bleep, 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 bleep. They were beeping out every other word. And, and it was like, okay, well, the one guy was aware of who he was talking to and trying to, you know, forget the rest of the surroundings. The other guy was like, he was in Terrorville, you know? And it was exemplified by speech. But I'm convinced of this. That if we recognize and understand that people are listening, it should affect the way we talk to one another. I would hope. Because really what comes out of our mouth is what's in our heart. And we need to understand that. Number three, the tongue also has the power to delight. 
the power to delight. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have already been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. He's saying, my brothers, that should not be that way. What he's saying is, how can, you know, think about this. How many times have you, as you were preparing to come to church to praise God, tore each other apart getting ready to get here? Even in the car, on the way here, as you were parking. Why would you pick this parking place? There's one over there. I mean, we're going to praise God. Shut up. Let's go. And then we get out of the vehicle. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? God bless you. Hallelujah. Praise God. Lovely morning. Praise the Lord. Look at this guy. Oh, beautiful day. Then we hear the word. And we get back in the car. And then we go, what's the big deal about this place versus that place? It's just like there's a time warp. We just pick right up where we left off. Put this on hold. We're coming back to it. Praise God from whom all blessings. What? I mean, what? And God's saying, are we that stupid that we don't see that and understand that? You know what it reminded me of? When I was a child, I had a relative who smoked like a chimney. All right? And I'm not going to name this person. But she smoked like a chimney. And when we would go to her house, she would want to kiss me. She would come over. Hi, honey, how you doing? And she would open her mouth to kiss me. And I'd be like, yeah. And I'd run to the bathroom and go, it was like kissing a dirty ashtray. And you go, and I'm not slamming people with smoke. But just I'm not, I'm not I'm not I'm just trying to make a point The point is this How can we praise God with our mouth And then tear people down with the same mouth How can we have breath that smells like a moldy fireplace and expect someone to want to get near it with our face. <laughs> what are we thinking? Stop and think about it. Pop in a mint. You want somebody to kiss? <laughs> somebody kiss you? Think about them. Pop in a mint, you know? I mean, that's okay. But the point is this, what God's trying to get across is, how, how, how silly are we? And he used the final two illustrations. He said, look, you know what, how about a fountain? A fountain, you know, all of life revolves around water. Whenever anybody would move into a new area, the first thing they would do is try to find fresh water. Because without water, you can't survive. It was a delight. Water's a delight. If you're out in the desert and you don't have anything to drink, and you see an oasis, man, water is a delight. You can't wait to get there. If you exercise, or you've ever been, like I have many times, out on a run, and I, and, I, and I got further away than I wanted to get, and I didn't have any water, and I was dying for something to drink, and I saw a water faucet in somebody's house. Man, I mean, there's been many times I'd sneak up to their side yard, turn it on, hurry up and get a drink, and then shut it off, and then, you know, thank, thank them. <laughs> if they were there. Or, but, but it's like water is a delight. We need water. It's a delight. And so he used a fountain. He says, man, isn't, a, isn't water delightful? Isn't it refreshing? Isn't it purifying? Isn't it, isn't it the very substance of life? He says, so are our words. The words that come out of our mouth can be a delight to people or they can destroy others. Do you delight those with your words? Are you uplifting? Are you edifying, as the Bible says? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Destructive word, rotten words, putrid words, disgusting words. Saying, how can you praise God on Sunday or at a Bible study or at some point in your life and then go to work and tell a dirty joke? How can you praise God and then, and then, and then rip people apart? 
How can you praise God and just spew out cuss words as if, you know what, you're a drunken sailor on leave somewhere? How can you praise God out of one side of your mouth and then curse men and curse life out of the other side of your mouth? He's saying, don't you know a fountain is delightful, it's refreshing, it's the very essence of life. And that's how our words should be for those around us. Are your words delightful? He goes on to say, my brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. What he is saying is this, and tied into what we've already learned, and that is this. Out of our mouths proceeds that which is in our hearts. Out of our lives, out of our faith proceeds works. Out of our heart proceeds words. And if your words do not match what they should as far as a child of God is concerned, you better examine yourself to make sure that you have had a heart transplant. You cannot continue to speak words that are displeasing to God if you've come to know Christ because the Spirit of God convicts you of those very words as they proceed out of your mouth. There has got to be a heart change. There's got to be a heart transplant. There's got to be a transformation. And if there is not, you better examine yourself to see whether you're in Christ or just in church. There's a huge difference between the two. Because it's a heart that's the problem. Not just our language and what we say and how we say it to people, but we need a new heart. We need a heart transplant, and the great physician, Jesus Christ, is able to do that. He can take out that old dead heart, and he can give you a new heart that's alive and sensitive to the things of God. And it better be reflected in how you speak to people around you. And if it's not, you better examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. How can we apply these? Here are 16 words, very practically speaking, where we can apply everything that God is trying to teach us. 16 words that can transform your life. Are you ready? Let's go. Numbers 1, 2, and 3. Please... And thank you. Please and thank you. Please and thank you. When you use these three words, please, thank you, you're treating people like people instead of things. They could have done it for you a million times. And in some of our relationships, we do things over and over again for the people that are close to us. But you know what? It never gets too tiring to hear thank you. It never gets old hearing please. Put these words in your vocabulary, and if you say them from your heart and you mean them sincerely, you will be amazed at how it transforms not only your life, but the lives of the people around you. Please and thank you. You know what? I don't care if it's a five-year-old person that does something for me. I make sure I say thank you. I'm not better than anybody else. If I want something, could you please go get that for me? And if I can get it myself, I'll just do it myself, because sometimes it takes longer to talk somebody into it than just getting it done. You know what I mean? But, hey, you know what? It never, you can never get tired of hearing please and thank you. Certainly, we should never be beyond saying, I'm sorry. There are no two healing words more than I'm sorry. You know, God's love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. There are many of us who have gone years, and we've never been wrong. We're amazing people. We've never been wrong. And the reason we know we've never been wrong is because we've never had to say, I'm sorry, recognizing that we have been wrong. And you know what? And that's pride and that's arrogance. And not only that, it's a lie. Because there's anybody here today that hasn't done something to offend somebody in some way, shape, or form and, and wouldn't benefit by saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said that. That was way out of line. I'm sorry that I said it and that you took it the way that you did because I didn't mean it that way and, and, and I ask you to forgive me. I'm sorry that I did that. I don't know what I was thinking when I did it. You know what? But man, you know what? We all got sin nature. We struggle with things. And sometimes we do things or say things we shouldn't say. But you know what? But we should always, as we're maturing, get to the point of taking a responsibility and accountability for actions and saying, you know what? I did it, and I'm sorry that I did it. And whatever the consequences are, they are. Because just as I mentioned before, sometimes God forgives our sin, but he doesn't wipe away the consequences of our actions. I'm sorry. And when we're sorry, we don't have an agenda, by the way. We have no agenda. I'm sorry, now I want you to do this or I want you to do that. No, no, no. I'm sorry, period. And whatever comes out of it and however it falls, that's the way it's going to be. I love you. I love you. Well, you know I love you. I show you. I demonstrate it. 
But you know what? There's nothing more appealing to the ear than the eyes see it, yes. But when the ears hear it, it completes the picture. I love you. And I want you to know that. And I don't care if you're a dad. I would encourage you to tell your son or your sons. I don't care how old they are. No one ever gets tired of hearing that someone loves them. I never get tired of hearing that God loves me. I need to hear it every day, as often as I can. God, thank you. Because sometimes it's like, I'm not the easiest guy to love. Can you imagine? (laughs) I'm praying for you. And we don't mean that condescending, flippantly. But when you tell somebody, I'm praying for you, you better mean it, and you better be doing it. Because it tells them you care about them. And not only when you say, I'm praying for you, but I would also suggest this. If you are praying for someone, there's a very high likelihood that you'd like to follow up with them to see how things are going. I'm praying for you. There's nothing better than someone telling me, Chuck, I'm praying for you, and then to call me three or four days later and say, hey, how did your meeting go? How did your doctor's appointment go? How did this go? How did that go? Hey, I'm praying for you, and I want to follow up because I need to know how to pray more in in an informed manner. I'm praying for you. And the last ones are this. May I help you? How can I bear your burden? I see you seem to be overwhelmed. May I help you? Now, ladies, listen to me. If your husband says, may I help you, please just say yes and give him the list. (laughs) You, You hear what I'm saying? Because it's like, may I help you? Well, you know you can help me, and if you really wanted to help me, you would have already been doing what you're supposed to be doing. Well, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a guy. Help me. Give me the list. And put it in order of priority. I know, I just want to make sure I'm not wasting time doing stuff that doesn't mean much to you. You know, if there's ten things, give me the top three. If I get down to five, praise God. May I help you? In closing, a man goes to visit an old family friend. He hasn't seen this guy in many years. All during the visit, this old friend's referring to his wife very affectionate terms. He's calling her sugar. He's calling her honey. He's calling her cupcake. He's calling her honey bun. He's calling her sweet biscuit. He's calling her sugar plum. He's calling her sweet face. He's calling her pretty one. Man, he's calling her all these wonderful words. And when she's not around, he goes, man, this is, this is amazing You've been married 60 years. And look at all the things that you... I mean, I can't believe all the affectionate terms you use for your wife. That's wonderful. He goes, man, when, when did you start doing that or, or why? He said, well, I'll be honest with you. About 10 years ago, I forgot her name. So <laughs> I just call her whatever comes to mind. I like that. Hey, hey. But his mind may be slipping, but his heart's in the right place. Because the words that came out were words that were building up and not destroying. I'm going to challenge you to consider that the only way you and I can become more like Jesus is when we learn to control our tongue. The tongue has the ability to direct people to Christ and to the Word of God. The tongue has the ability to destroy people around us with just flippant, maybe not even thought-out comments that destroy and they hurt and they maim and they leave scars for years. And the tongue has the power to delight, to build people up around us. And as God's people, what a wonderful legacy that would be for us one day at our funeral to have people standing up and saying, you know what, that guy, that woman, always had something positive to say because they knew that God was in control of all things. Father, just thank you for your word. We just are in awe of who you are. We just pray that you could control our tongue because we know we can't do it in and of ourselves, that it takes a new heart. And our heart's only made right when we recognize that we're sinners before God, that we need to be saved from the consequences of sin. And as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you tell us not only do we have a new heart, but we have a new nature. God, we just pray that we would continue to be sensitive to your Spirit's uh, inclinations in our life, his leading in our life, to lead us in a way that's pleasing to you by the words that come out of our mouth. May we praise you and praise those around us. May we we praise and uplift your name and also uplift those who you have brought into our path. May we be people who are a light in a very positive way, in a way that is delightful to the ears of those who hear, 
May we never compromise truth in the words that we say, but speak that truth with love and understanding and gentleness. And God, we praise you for what you'll do in our lives as we consider more carefully the words that come out of our lips. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.